Once upon a time, in a land far away, there was a kingdom called Georgia, not the southern state, but one tucked into the Kashkar Mountains east of the Black Sea, between modern-day Turkey and Russia, where wild geraniums, carpet meadows, and the sound of waterfalls is everywhere. A thousand years ago, it was Camelot, rich with everything that mattered, including the love of God. Under the patronage of benevolent kings and queens, artists were brought to Georgia from Constantinople to build huge churches out of large rock. Some of those artists must have come with the Hagia Sophia in mind because there was nothing modest about their work. Their Byzantine churches were monuments full of exquisite arches, frescoes, and stonework, many of which survive today. But only as ruins or museums, because the age of Christianity is over in Turkey. The churches are multi-purpose buildings now, serving as soccer fields, sheep pens, and garbage dumps. The roofs are gone, so are the doors and the floors and the altars. All that is left are the walls, the graceful arches and the here and there traces of an old fresco that has somehow survived. The one raised arm, the fingers curled in that distinct consolation. It is Christ still giving his blessing to a ruined church. For me, this is the image hanging over Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the triumphant letter in which he crowns Christ as the ruler of all creation and the church as Christ's body. Two, not two entities, but one. God's chosen instrument of the reconciliation of the world. The church shall be the gathering of heaven on earth, Paul says. From the heart of Christ's body shall flow all the transforming love of God, bestowing hope, Paul says, bestowing riches in measurable greatness. As God is to Christ, so shall the church be to the world, the means of filling the whole cosmo with the love of God. Imagine a four-tiered fountain, if you will, in which God's glory spills over into Christ, and Christ's glory pours into the church, and the church's glory drenches the whole universe. That is what Paul can see as clear as day, the perfection of creation through the agency of the church. I have been using future tense out of sheer disbelief, but Paul does not. He uses the past in the present tense. And he has put all things under his feet and has made all things him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul wrote likely from his jail cell with the only lighting shining in from a small square window above his head. 
He suspected that life was coming to a violent end, but this did not diminish his sense of God's providence or of God's confidence in the church. Paul's own experience did not count, at least not the hecklings, the beatings, or the arrests. All that counted was the power he felt flowing through his body when he spoke of Christ. The things he said, the things that happened to those who heard him and believed. In the grip of that power, Paul had no doubt about God's ultimate success. God would succeed. God had already succeeded. The world was simply slow to catch on. I imagine like most of you, we belong to a church that falls somewhat short of Paul's vision. I'm not sure why Christians are surprised when we read about our declining numbers in the newspaper. When we squabble among ourselves, the next generation walks right past our doors, not even looking in. If they are searching at all, they are searching for more than what we are offering them. Perhaps for a place where they may have a sense of the presence of God, among people who show some signs of having been changed by that presence. They are looking for a glimpse of heaven and they are not finding it with us. Often I am asked, isn't the church supposed to be the place where God lives with no small hint of skepticism? According to St. Paul, it still is. The roof may be gone, there may be sheep grazing in the nave, but Christ is still there. Half a face with one wide eye looking right at us. One hand raised in endless benediction, still giving his blessing to a ruined church. For he cannot or will not be separated from his body. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Paul says that we are his consummation, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Without us, his fullness is not full. Without him, we are as good as dead. He may not need us, but he is bound to us in love. We are his own, Paul says the executor of God's dream for the redemption of the cosmos. Nonetheless, how do we live with this paradox? This painful discontinuity between Paul's vision of our divine nobility and the truth we know about ourselves. The easiest way, I suppose, would be to decide that Paul was dreaming. It was a glorious dream, but it was still a dream. Or we could decide that he was right and that the church really is Christ's broker on earth. And the sooner we take over the world, the better. Only we 
cannot afford to do either of those options, not without betraying our head, who was stuck with the same paradox. Jesus was ruler of the universe, born in a barn. He was the great high priest, misunderstood by the priesthood of his day. He was the cosmic Christ, hung out on a cross to die. So on what grounds do we have as his body to expect more clarity than was given to him? The difference is, of course, is that we have brought most of our problems on ourselves, while Jesus suffered at no fault of his own. What we share with him, that fullness of his in which we take part, is the strenuous mystery of our mixed parentage. We are God's own children through our kinship with Christ. We are also children of Adam and Eve with a craving for forbidden fruit salad. Ask us for our papers, and you will find two passports on our persons. One says we are citizens of heaven, and the other insists that we are taxpayers on earth. It is no excuse for all the trouble we get into, but it does help to explain our spotty record. What Paul asks us to believe is that our two-ness has already been healed in our oneness in Christ. Not that it will be healed, but that it already has been healed. Even if we cannot feel it yet, even if there is no startling evidence that it is so. It is as if we are clumping around in a plaster cast, knocking things over and stepping on the dog. But when that cast comes off, we shall see for ourselves what has been true all along, that we have been made whole in him, that we are being made whole in him, and that we shall be made whole in him who is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Paul says he prays that the eyes of our hearts will be opened so that we can see the great spirit of God at work all around us. Based on my own experience, this is not the kind of stuff that makes headlines. Not in the way declining membership does. It is just your basic raising of the dead kind of stuff that happens in church all the time. Like the woman with a recurrent cancer who is told that she has six months to live. The church gathers around her and her husband laying hands on them, offering a meal train of dinners and cleaning their house. Someone comes up with the idea of giving the woman a foot massage and painting her toenails red, which does more for her spirits than any visit from a pastor. 
She gives away her jewelry. She lets her driver license expire. She starts writing poetry again. She prepares to die. But instead, she gets better. On Christmas Eve, she is back in church for the first time in months with her oxygen tank slung over her shoulder and a clear plastic tube running under her nose. After the first hymn, she makes her way to the lectern to read the lesson from Isaiah. Her tank hisses every five seconds. Every candle in the place glitters in her eyes. Strengthen the weak hand, she reads bending her body towards the words, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. When she sits down, the congregation knows that they have not just heard the word of the Lord, they have seen it in action. You get the idea. No matter how hard we try in the church, we will always mess things up. And no matter how badly we mess some things up in the church, other things will keep turning out right. Because we are not, thank God, in charge. With the eyes of your heart enlightened, you can usually spot the one who is. Just search for any scrap of that church that is still standing, any place where God is still worshiped, any bunch of faces that are still towards, turn towards the light, and you will see him there bending over them, his hand upraised in endless blessing it is he who fills all in all, whose fullness has spilled over into us. It is Christ. Amen.